Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you for this precious truth that we have a mediator. We have one who went on our behalf to the cross. We have one who lived the life we couldn't live. We have one who intercedes for us, who prays for us, who pleads our case before your throne. Christ, our advocate, Lord, we thank you for this precious truth. And as we open up your word again today, Lord, help us to discern once again the, the truth of the gospel that, that transforms our hearts and our minds. Keep us on guard, Father, against those who would seek to lead us away from these truths. Or make your true gospel known to us. And so, Father, will you speak through me a word that will edify your church and glorify your name, sanctify us in truth. Your word is truth, and we submit ourselves to it now. We ask all these things in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen, amen. You can go ahead, <clears throat> excuse me, and have a seat. And uh, I'll just uh, go ahead and apologize in advance. You know, I woke up this morning and thought maybe I was going to fake it, um, but I'm bringing you my just best uh, Johnny Cash impersonation today. Um, you know, praise God from whom all day quill flows. That's uh, <laughs> it's been my song, my song today. And so... Um, you know, great theologian Rocky Balboa once said, all I want to do is go the distance. So that is my, my aim for the next little bit is just to power through one more service. And um, if you're not there already, Matthew chapter 7 is where we'll be. If you're new with us, uh, my name is Taylor. I serve here at Cross as lead pastor. I'm honored to have you worshiping with us. And what our church family has been doing for the last several months is we've been studying verse by verse uh, Matthew chapters 5 through 7. This is called the Sermon on the Mount. This is the most famous sermon that Jesus ever preached. And it's really known to us as, as somewhat of a manifesto for the Christian life. As John Stott said, this is what he desires for his people to be. So if you were to ask the question, what is a true Christian, um, we really don't have to look further than the Sermon on the Mount. This is what Jesus lays out for us of what he desires for us to be in this world. This is a picture of what true Christians will look like. And, and we have a lot to cover this morning, and so we're, we're just going to get right to it. Um, the last section we looked at just before Christmas, Jesus had laid out a fork in the road. When it comes to following him, there's two ways that we can go. There's one gate that's wide and easy, and there's another gate that's narrow and hard. There's many who find the wide gate, and there's few who find the narrow gate. And the gate that we choose is important because Jesus says the wide gate is a way that leads to destruction, and the narrow gate is the one that leads to life. So a few weeks back, we saw a big crowd walking through a wide gate, and today what we're going to do in 15 through 20 is take a closer look at the people who are responsible for leading them there. And what Jesus shows us in this passage this morning is that walking in the Jesus way means that we must be on guard against false prophets who infiltrate the church and seek to destroy believers from within. Part of walking the Jesus way means being on guard against false teachers. They had plagued the nation of Israel, they plagued the early church, they plague us today, and they'll grow worse and worse the closer we get to the return of Jesus Christ. False prophets are never going away. John MacArthur's written in his uh, Matthew commentary that um, there has always been a large market for false prophets because most people do not want to hear the truth. They prefer to hear what is pleasant and flattering even if it is false and dangerous over what is unpleasant and unflattering even if it is true and helpful. There will always be false prophets preaching a wide, easy message because there will always be people who are looking for a wide, easy path. And today we're going to see that there are two types of prophets preaching two very different messages to two different crowds through two different gates. So again, from Matthew 7, let's read together verse 15. Jesus says, beware of false prophets. Everybody say beware. Beware, beware of false prophets 
who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. As we walk in the Jesus way, he warns us, beware of false prophets. This is the teaching of the true prophet. This is the teaching of the true way, and he warns us, beware of false prophets. And he shows us first in verse 15 that their identity is disguised. A prophet is someone who foretells um, or who foretells the word of God. We often think of uh, of prophets as as just those who predict future events, but what we see through Scripture, the case we see in Scripture, is that the role of the prophets is simply to speak forth the word of God. The prophet is the one whose message is undergirded by the claim, thus says the Lord. And just as there are true prophets who preach the true word of God, there are false prophets who distort his word and lead others astray. And when Jesus addressed this issue of false prophets, it wasn't a new concept. All throughout Israel's history, the Jewish people were in danger of being misled by those who claimed to be speaking on behalf of God. Deuteronomy 13 in particular warned that those who would try to entice people into chasing after other gods. And when this type of person rose up, they weren't just to be rejected. Under the old covenant law, the consequence for false prophets is that they faced capital punishment and they would be put to death. It was under the old covenant, and it still is under the new covenant, no small matter for someone to lead God's people astray with false teaching. And the first warning Jesus gives us about false prophets is that they don't walk in the door announcing that they're false prophets. Psalm 100 tells us that God's people are the sheep of his pasture. And John 10, Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd who lays down the life, his life for his sheep. And in the same way it was in the first century context, it remains true today. One of the primary threats that sheep face on an ongoing basis are wolves. Because wolves are vicious animals and sheep are utterly defenseless against them. And Jesus warns us, this is what false prophets are. They're wolves that want to devour the sheep. But the trouble with these wolves is that they don't dress like wolves. Jesus says they come in the door disguised as sheep. False prophets will just try to draw God's people away from the outside. False prophets want to destroy God's people from the inside. They'll arrive into the church looking innocent and helpless, and they may even be under the delusion that they themselves are sheep. No one thinks they're a threat, so they stop paying attention to them. They let their guard down, and as soon as this happens, the fangs come out, and they come after blood. And church, do not miss this this morning. The primary way false prophets devour God's people is through false teaching. They claim to speak on behalf of God. And most know how to manipulate scripture, at least to use it to make it sound like it's the voice of God. And it's through this mission of manipulation and deception that they lead many astray. And unfortunately, so many modern Christians, I fear that we're so afraid of being perceived as judgmental and narrow-minded that we're terrified of even mentioning the notion that false prophets might exist. I fear many of us kind of hide behind this false humility of of like, well, you know, nobody's perfect and, and I got my own problems, so who am I to say that that person's not speaking on behalf of God? But this isn't the Jesus way. Jesus himself and the writers of the New Testament warned of false prophets at nearly every turn. Almost every single book in the New Testament issues some sort of warning against false teachers, against false prophets. Towards the end of Matthew's gospel, Matthew 24, 24, Jesus warned as we get closer to his return, that false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect, even those who belong to him. So Jesus doesn't just warn the false prophets or false Christ would arrive. He warns some of them would actually perform miracles. Some of them would actually perform signs. Some would perform wonders under demonic power. And through doing this, they would lead many away from the truth. And performing signs and wonders, they look like God's people. They look like sheep. But what betrays them is that they preach a different gospel. 
Paul speaks to this in Ephesians, or excuse me, Acts chapter 20. This is his final address to the Ephesian elders, and in his final address to them, he warns of false prophets. He says, therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Everybody say whole counsel. Pay attention to that. He said, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Understand the primary way that pastors and elders within the local church are called to care for God's people and to shepherd God's people is through preaching the whole counsel of God's word. And one of the telltale signs of someone who is a wolf in sheep's clothing is that they are selective in their use of scripture. Instead of preaching the whole counsel of God's word, they'll twist it, they'll manipulate it, They'll only pay attention to certain parts of it. They'll take scripture out of context. So it's not just that they deny scripture. The most deceptive false teachers use, know how to use just enough scripture to make it sound like they are speaking God's word. The wolves don't come dressed as wolves. They don't come with fangs. They don't come with sharp claws. They don't come with nasty, mangy fur. They don't look mean and aggressive. And in fact, they might look like the friendliest people in the church. Their words aren't harsh and heavy. They'll speak words of flattery that sound good to your ears, that warm your heart, that make you want to hear more. I think it's important we remember in 1 Corinthians 11 that, that Paul warns us Satan doesn't arrive with horns and a pitchfork. He doesn't show up to the, to the scene with, with sharp teeth and yellow eyes. Paul says Satan comes disguised as an angel of light. False teachers want to be perceived as friendly. They want to be perceived as likable. They want to be perceived as harmless. They want to speak soothing words that draw you in and warm your heart and appeal to your strongest desires. You know, uh, Emily and I saw this firsthand about a decade ago. We were serving in student ministry up in uh, North Carolina. And there was another church in our area uh, whose pastor was really starting to gain a lot of attention. His church was starting to gain uh, a lot of traction. They advertised themselves as, as a church for those who had been hurt by the church. It was for those who were broken, for those who were hurting, for those who were confused, for those who were spiritual misfits, for those who were kind of beaten up and broken down by the, the overbur overly burdensome religious culture. And, and I'm not kidding when I tell you, man, that this guy had one of the warmest, one of the most inviting, one of the friendliest, one of the most funny, funny personalities that you could ever hope to be around. In, in particular, he was a champion of women. He, he claimed that their church would be the church that gave opportunities to women that, that no other churches were, were willing to give. And so his church grew. Man, he, he got book deals, and he wrote, he wrote books, and he was a high-demand conference speaker, and, and he was pretty much universally liked by everybody across the board as his ministry just exploded. And it wasn't long after Emily and I moved to Buford, almost 10 years ago, that we learned uh, that this pastor had had an affair with a female member of his staff. And, and whenever this became discovered, all, all of these, these other things from his behind-the-scenes dealings started to, to come out and come to light. And over the last decade, we've seen these, he's worked his way now through several relationships, and he's kind of built this uh, through, through different uh, relationships with women, and he's kind of built this reputation of being somebody who even uses his teaching, uses his theology to prey on vulnerable women. And, and what's heartbreaking mostly about all of this is he's still engaged in full-time ministry. He still pastors a church. People are still giving him deals to write books. He's still a high-demand speaker in all this. And listen, as it tends to be with false teachers, there hasn't just been a moral decline, there's also been a doctrinal decline as well, because pay attention to this, this is what's happening all across our culture right now. 
When someone professes to be a follower of Jesus Christ, but they want to live a life of open, unrepentant sin, what they'll do is develop a series of doctrines and theologies to support their lifestyle. They'll take the Bible and twist it and use it selectively and quote it selectively to, to justify just being able to say, this is how I want to live my life. And so, so in this case, man, not, not only is he apostate as a leader, he's leading many other people astray in the process. And you would never know this just getting to know him on the surface level. You'd never know these things. He looks like a sheep, but church, I mean, let's make no mistake, that, that's a wolf. That's a wolf. When false teachers arrive, they do their best to blend in. So Jesus warns us. They come in disguise, and they are not the person that we think they are. But even though they come in disguise, Jesus says there is a way to tell their true identity. He goes on to say this in verses 16 through 18. He says, you will recognize them by their fruits. You will, they come disguised as wolves in sheep's clothing, but you will recognize them by their fruits. And he asked them this question. He said, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. So false teachers come with their identity disguised, but the way we can tell they're false teachers, second Jesus shows us, is that their fruit is diseased. It's not good fruit. This is, we've seen Jesus do this frequently in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Like he gives a really, really simple illustration, one that's easy to understand, one that's easy to follow. He says, good trees don't produce bad fruit, and bad trees don't produce good fruit. D.A. Carson has noted that during the time of Jesus, <clears throat> everyone would have known uh, that buckthorn, which is still around today, produced a really small berry that closely resembled a grape. Uh, but buckthorn can be an invasive species as well. And anybody who mistook uh, the fruit of a buckthorn for an actual grape and decided they wanted to try to make wine with it would have learned very, very quickly that they had bad fruit. And in the same way, thistle produces a flower that can closely resemble a fig, but close examination reveals that it's not one. And so there's a deceptive appearance to both of these plants. But when you look at them closely, you quickly see that the fruit is bad. If a tree is truly good, it will produce good fruit. I grew up in the mountains of Western North Carolina, and uh, the house I grew up in, um, we, we had a couple of apple trees in our yard, and, and man, when you picked them at the right time throughout the course of the year, they, they were really sweet and, and delicious, and, and so we had a neighborhood full of kids, and we were often pulling them off the tree while we are out you know, playing in the neighborhood throughout the course of the year, but um, one year, we had a really, really harsh winter. We had a lot of snow, a lot of, Buford, you know what snow is, right? Like, are we, are we good with that? Snow and ice, uh, heavy snow and ice, and so one of our apple trees went down. And so we, we cleared it out of the yard. And then later uh, during the next year, um, around the time that we usually started picking apples off the tree, they were still growing. They still looked good. And so I'm out in the yard playing with my friends. We went and pulled apples off the tree. It looked good from the outside, but as soon as I bit into it, I immediately discovered it was rotten to the core. It just caused me to gag. And as we pulled apples off the tree, we started seeing that all of the apples were bad. And so my dad had someone come to the house, and what he was able to, to help us understand was that when the other tree went down, it destroyed the root system of this tree, so it was producing bad fruit. And it wasn't long after that 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 other tree was also cut down. And the same is true of false teachers. That the same is true of false teachers. They're bad trees producing bad fruit. And Jesus shows us they may be able to hide their faces, but they cannot hide their fruit. They can't hide their fruit. Even if it initially looks good, it won't be long after you bite into it that you realize it's rotten to the core. One of the clearest examples of this comes from the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah. You know, as, as God's people did, the Old Testament feels like Groundhog Day sometimes, right? 
You know, they, they fall into sin, they, they rebel against God, they fall into idolatry and wickedness and rebellion and the immorality of the nations. But God, as he had promised he would do under the new covenant, he, he always raises up a prophet. So he raises up Jeremiah, who faithfully declares the word of God. He calls the people back to repentance, calls the people back into right relationship with God. Jeremiah both foretells and foretells the word of God. He, he tells them, listen, you've got to repent. You've got to turn from your wickedness. You've got to come back to the word of God and right relationship with him. And if you don't, we're going to be conquered. We're going to be carried off into captivity. And he gave the people this warning of God's coming judgment. But what do the false prophets do during this time? They come up, they rise up, and they completely contradict Jeremiah's message. And how do they contradict it? That they're going, no, 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 no. That's not what's going to happen. God's a God of love. He cares about us. We're his children. He wouldn't, he wouldn't let things like this happen to us. The, the message of the false prophets during the time of Jeremiah can be summed up in Jeremiah 6.14. Jeremiah says, they cried out, peace, peace, when there was no peace. They prophesied to the people, you are at perfect peace with God in spite of your sin. Everything is fine. Jeremiah was trying to call them to repentance, but the people didn't listen. And ultimately, they were carried into captivity. The false prophets wanted everyone to think that God was not angry with them because of their sin, and they had no reason to worry that because they were at perfect peace with God. Listen, church, one of the clearest indicators of false prophets, it's not always what they will say. One of the clearest indicators of false prophets is what they won't say. It's what they won't speak to. J.I. Packer has given a really good reflection here. He says, the mark of the false prophet or teacher is self-serving unfaithfulness to God and his truth. It may be that he says what he shouldn't, but it is far more likely that he will err by failing to say what he should. He will gloss over all the tough questions and issues, as did the false prophets in the Old Testament who went around saying peace, peace, when there was no peace. They wouldn't speak the tough word calling for repentance, nor suggest that Israel was out of sorts spiritually. Instead, they brought groundless comfort, lulling people into a false sense of security so that their hearers were totally unprepared for the judgment which eventually came on them. There are teachers in the church today who never speak of repentance, self-denial, the call to be relatively poor for the Lord's sake, or any other demanding aspect of discipleship. Naturally, they are popular and approved, but for all that, they are false prophets. We will know such people by their fruits. Church, please do not miss this today. False prophets speak soothing words of comfort. They're popular. They're, they're likable. There's lots of people following them, and, and that naturally follows because Jesus said just a few verses earlier, they're preaching a very wide way that's easy. It's evidence that they're not true prophets. There's a reason why the prophets and the apostles and Jesus himself were universally hated for the messages that they preached. And the reason they were hated is because they were willing to say the quiet part out loud. And we should follow their example. The prophets and the apostles and Jesus, they were more concerned about being found unfaithful in the eyes of God than they were about being found unfriendly in the eyes of man. And I fear that's what's happened to so many of his followers of Christ. Man, if Jeremiah 6 is not still true today. We've got an entire generation of Christians who will avoid entire portions of the Bible, entire doctrines, entire truths of Scripture, because we are terrified that by reading it and believing it and preaching it, people might not like us. So the modern-day false prophets make the same error. They preach the wide, easy way. They cry, peace, peace, when there is no peace. The message is, God would never get angry at you. He won't judge you. That's what the Pharisees did, and Jesus is no Pharisee. You be you just the way you are. 
You can be comfortable in your sexual sin. You can be comfortable in your idolatry of money and materialism and comfort, your your spiritual apathy, your lack of zeal, your half-hearted devotion to Jesus and to his word and his church. He's perfectly fine with all of this. You're still at peace with him in spite of sin. Understand, false prophets in the Bible weren't just false prophets because of what they said. They were false prophets because of what they wouldn't say. It's not just that they led people into idolatry and the false worship of false gods, which is why one of the clearest early mark of a false prophet is that they want to muddy the waters about the word of God. This is what one of the indicators of, you know, this is, this is what's infecting the church in, in many ways today and what we're suffering from outside of these walls. This is the error of modern liberal progressivism is it wants to make the Bible just seem like it's hopelessly vague. It, it can't be understood. It's, it's, nothing can be clear. It's all just gray, and we need to live in the space of that gray, and, and the things that were said then don't really mean much to us now, and the things that were commanded then don't apply to us now. It just wants to live in the gray. You know, I, I saw this uh, old cartoon the other day. It's a really old cartoon, and uh, it illustrated this really, really well, and this, this cartoon was drawn during the rise of the modernist thinking of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And, and before I get into this, I just hope you'll understand by hearing this, there's nothing new under the sun. Uh, modernism was the parent of postmodernism, which is the parent of progressive liberalism. Every 50 years, somebody claims they've discovered something new. In fact, it's just the same stuff that was discarded 50 years earlier. And so there's nothing new under the sun. Modernism was the parent movement of postmodernism. It's the grandparent of theological liberalism. And this is what the cartoon depicted. It depicted a person who was walking down a flight of stairs. At the top of the stairs was biblical Christianity. And, and, and as this guy was walking down the stairs, there was this regression away from biblically orthodox faith. And the first step down was the denial of the infallibility of Scripture. And then once you get someone to deny the infallibility of scripture, then suddenly you'll begin to deny the image of God in man. And then the next step down was the denial of the virgin birth. And the next step down was the denial of miracles. And the next step down was the denial of the substitutionary atonement of Christ. And the next step down was the denial of the resurrection. It wasn't a real event. It was just a metaphor. And then the next step after that was a step down into agnosticism before it became full-blown atheism. It always starts with a muddying of the waters about what the word of God is. False teachers want you to believe that God's word can't be understood, that it can't be trusted, that it can't be rightly interpreted, that it has no bearing on your life today. And they'll use it only to their advantage when it supports their positions. I just want to ask by, by show of hands, group, group participation here, um, how many of you are, are committed to, to some sort of Bible reading plan in 2023? Just if that's you, show your hand. Okay, so um, how many of us in a Bible reading plan, uh, probably most of us, how many of us have already read Genesis chapter 3? It's probably, probably on January 3rd, right? Like, everybody's good. We're eight days in. Who's still strong? Like, yes, I got this. Most of us have maybe read Genesis chapter 3. And so it's a little quiz on your reading from this past week. What are the first recorded words of Satan that are written in the Bible? Did God really say? Did God actually say that the first recorded words of Satan in Scripture, they're a question. And his, his very first tactic is to get Adam and Eve to doubt what the word of God actually said. Now, Eve starts out strong, right? She's like, actually, yeah, that's exactly what God said. Did God actually say don't eat that? She's like, yeah, I mean, he, he did. And yet he, he continued to deceive. He, it always starts with a muddying of, of, of the waters of what the word of God is. Or even if he can't fully get us to, to, to disbelieve what it says, he'll do what he did with Eve and say, well, yeah, that might be what it said, but, but that's not really what he meant, meant something different. 
And so what does he do with her? He gets her to doubt God's word, and then he distorts its message, her understanding of the message, and then he appeals to the desires of her flesh, and then came the lie. Hey, you can take and eat this, and you won't die. He was crying peace, peace when there was no peace. He was preaching a wide, easy way that ultimately led to all of our destruction. And it's because of the ongoing presence of sin and the consequences that we will die. Let me just break this down Barney style for us this morning, if that's okay. A false prophet is someone who prophesies falsely. That's profound, right? You should probably tweet that later today. It's that. What they do is they take editorial license over the word of God. They add to it. That's legalism. They subtract from it. That's liberalism. They deny it. That's agnosticism. That's atheism. They do all these things as they see fit. And beyond that, we see through Scripture, especially in Matthew chapter 23, a number of marks of false teachers. They care only about themselves and the praise that comes from man. They're infatuated with money. They prey on the most vulnerable of God's people. Instead of caring for God's people, they devour them. They're out to build their own platforms. They love the praise of man. They're easily drunk with power. And maybe the most deceptive of all, some false prophets are actually sound in their preaching, but they're not sound in their living. They preach doctrinally sound messages, but they don't live doctrinally sound lives. But do not miss this this morning. False prophets are not just nice people with good intentions who are just wrong on some things. Church, false prophets are not true Christians. They're not sheep, they're wolves. They're not faithful, they're ravenous. And even though they arrive in disguise, Jesus tells us we can tell who they are by their fruit. And then he closes out this passage with a warning. This is verse 19 and 20. Jesus says, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And thus you will recognize them by their fruits. So false prophets will disguise their true identity they, they bear diseased fruit. And third, the warning Jesus gives this morning is that their souls will be destroyed. As we'll see next week, along with all those who follow their message and believe. Don't miss this. Do, do not miss this. Do not miss this in our culture where we just automatically believe that bigger is better, that popular is good. No matter how successful they appear to be, no matter how big the crowds they accumulate, no matter how well-liked they are by man, every false prophet will one day face the full consequences of their corruption. Jesus carries out this illustration a step further, and he does not mince words. Like a dead tree that produces bad fruit, every false prophet who corrupts his word and misleads his people will be cut down, and they will be cast into the lake of fire, where they will perish for eternity under the holy wrath of the living God. False prophets will not get away with this. And Jesus issues this as a stern warning. Peter elaborates on this, 2 Peter 2, 1 through 3. He said, false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. That's what they want. They want to get on the inside. They want to get these things inside the church. They're not just trying to draw you from the outside. They want to get them in. He warns against this, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality. That's what we'll see next week. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. No matter how nice they seem, no matter how likable they are, no matter how they may appear on the outside, the Lord knows the heart of man, and he will justly condemn for all eternity those who lead people astray. 
Jesus calls us beware of false prophets. Beware of false prophets. Beware of false prophets. So, so how do we actually stand on guard against them in the church today? I want to give us three applications as we start to close our time together this morning. Well, the first way we guard against false prophets is we reveal their true identity. Now, I want to pause here for just a moment. I want to clarify. I feel the need to clarify what I'm not saying today. Um, the warning given here by Jesus is not an encouragement for you to become a heresy hunter who's always going on a witch hunt. That's not what he's encouraging here. Like, please don't go become an internet blogger after this sermon today. You've got way too many already. But that's not what he's encouraging here. The warning comes just a, a dozen verses after Jesus also warned us against having an overly judgmental spirit and holding people to a higher standard than we want to be willing to hold ourselves. And so we have to be very, very careful with this, just that there's a universe of difference between someone who actually has the God-given gift of spiritual discernment and somebody who's just a clown and is needlessly antagonistic. Your cynicism's not a spiritual gift. Like being a professional critic, that, that has not been given to you by the Holy Spirit. What this passage is for us, it's just a sobering reminder, false teachers are real, they do exist, and we have to deal with them when they come doesn't mean that we'd be going to witch hunt and become heresy hunters. You know, whenever we do this, we have to do this publicly. But Paul shows this to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1. Timothy's a young pastor. He's Paul's young protege. And, and he shows him how, how false teachers have to be dealt with in the context of the local church. He says, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith in a good conscience, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. And watch what he does. Among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander. Now, I doubt anybody in here today is named Hymenaeus, right? But anybody want to be bold enough to say their name's Alexander? In the room, so no Alexander's in the room. Man, they got called out in the Bible. That's a big deal, right? That's what Paul does. He's not afraid to call them by name. Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've headed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. When false teachers corrupt God's word and cause harm to God's people, we have to deal with them decisively and we identify them publicly through processes of church discipline. Again, we don't want to be overzealous. We don't want to cry wolf if it's really a sheep, but we also can't be guilty of the cowardice of ignoring the wolf just because we think it's a sheep. When they're discovered, we call them to repentance, and if they refuse to repent, they have to be cast out. When discovered, we reveal their true identity. Second, Jesus shows us from this passage this morning that we can recognize their corrupt fruit. Pay attention to fruit. Jesus says we can recognize false prophets by their fruit. And here's the trick. Some preach a sound message, but they don't live sound lives. Some live sound lives, but they don't preach a sound message. And appearances can be deceiving. But just like the tree that was in my front yard when I was growing up as a kid, just because the tree looks alive on the outside and appears to be producing fruit doesn't mean that it's not dead on the inside. So we always inspect the fruit. And this fruit can be clearly known. In Galatians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul shows there is an obvious difference between what is sin and what is of the Spirit. And he lays out the fruit of the Spirit and the works of the flesh. Galatians 5, 19 through 24. He says the works of the flesh are evident. So they're obvious. He said, Paul says, these things are obvious. These are the things that are obviously not of the Lord. Sexual immorality and impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So Paul says, listen, if, if that's the life you're living, 
Like that's, that's the life that you're living, unrepentant, totally apart from Christ. These are the works of the flesh. But then he also says, equally as clear, is the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is what? He says it's love, and it's joy, it's peace, it's patience, it's kindness, it's goodness, it's faithfulness. That's what we see necessity for today. Gentleness and self-control. And he says against such things, against things like this, there's no law. Paul says no law against loving anybody. No law against being joyful. No law against being faithful. And he says, verse 24, those who belong. So how do we know who belongs to Jesus Christ? Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh along with its passions and its desires. So, so, so do not miss this this morning. Hear me out. If someone claims to be a true prophet, but they are living in the works of the flesh, or if they are permissive about the works of the flesh, this is evidence that this person does not belong to Jesus Christ. That's a bad tree. That's a false prophet preaching a wide and easy way. But if the preaching and the living are marked by the fruits of the Spirit, then it's a good tree producing good fruit, and we should rejoice for who they are. Appearances can be deceiving, so Jesus says, look for fruit. But ultimately, church, the way we guard against false prophets, finally, is just to reject their message. We just reject what they have to say. And this requires, again, discernment. Doesn't mean being a person who's needlessly antagonistic, doesn't mean being a heresy hunter, but we should all, as followers of Christ, not be gullible. But we should be discerning. We should desire to know if what's being said is actually true. But listen, there's a reason why we are like ad nauseum around here encouraging you read your Bible. Know your Bible, study your Bible, go to community group, talk about the sermon. But listen, I am not infallible. This is what's infallible. But we check everything that's said against this word, and this is what John says to do in 1 John 4, 1. He says, beloved, do not believe every spirit. Don't be gullible, don't just believe it because they're popular, they got a big following, they got PhD by their name. Don't believe it just because of these things. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. In 2 John, John goes on to say that false teachers should not even be welcomed into our home and shouldn't be given a greeting when we see them in public. How's that go in our tolerance culture today? And most of us have no framework for this. Listen, we're not called to be insulting, but we are also definitely not called to be inviting or, or accommodating. So practically, here's what that means. It means don't go to their churches. It means don't download their podcasts. Don't watch their program on TV or online. Don't, don't, don't buy their books. Don't go to their conferences. Don't, don't do these things. I, I'm gonna say something. I'm gonna, I'm gonna say just enough to get myself in trouble this morning, and I'm not feeling well today, so maybe if you don't like this, what you can say is like, well, I mean, Taylor wasn't really feeling well today, so we can we just kind of push that off to the side, but, but I think it's pressing important. It needs to be said. One of the biggest challenges we're facing in the modern church today is that some of the churches producing the most popular music are the churches that are preaching the very worst messages. You, you think Satan, who disguises himself as an angel of light, False teachers who are wolves in sheep's clothing, you, you think they're not capable of using even doctrinally sound songs to draw people into churches while they hear destructive messages? We have to be on guard against these things. I mean, transparency, as a church, there's a few ministries, man, we, we just, over the last couple of years, kind of put a flag in the ground and said, look, that's a bridge too far. They're preaching a different gospel. They're preaching a wide and easy way, and we don't want to be guilty of inadvertently leading people there. We have to be on guard against these things. No matter how good the music is, we can't be guilty of indirectly exposing people to a false gospel. Light does not have fellowship with darkness. And so as best as possible, we do not want to partner with the darkness. 
A couple years back, um, our church was invited to be a part of a multi-church ministry event. And uh, when the, minute, when the uh, organizers of the event reached out and asked if we'd like to participate, um, the first question I always ask is, who else is participating? You know, what other ministries and other churches are going to be involved? And, and they started naming off some of these churches. And, and listen, at least three of these churches, as they started listing who was involved, have drifted into full-blown apostasy. And again, I, I don't mean like I'm just like making stuff up. I mean like they have like clear doctrinal statements that deny essential doctrines of Christianity. That they've said things publicly. They're very permissive about sin, particularly sexual sin. That they've openly denied or, or refuted the authority of Scripture, the infallibility of Scripture. And so I just communicated. I said, hey, we're not going to be able to participate. And, and it's for these reasons. I wasn't, I wasn't aggressive about the whole thing. I wasn't argumentative. I just said we weren't going to be able to do that. And, and when I said this, the organizers of the event looked at me like I had three heads. I mean, they looked at me like I was absolutely crazy. They started asserting that I was being divisive. I was being overly dogmatic, that this jeopardized the unity of Christians. And let me just jump right to the point of that, and I'm going to paraphrase the late, great Adrian Rogers in the process. Listen, church, until I die or get fired to the glory of God, it is my desire for Cross Community Church that we would always choose to divide over truth to the glory of God rather than unite in error in order to appease man. The day we get to the place, the day we get to the place where we choose to unite with error over div- instead of divide over truth is the day you no longer have qualified leaders here and you should go find a different church. It is always, always better to divide over truth than to unite with error. I read these words from Charles Spurgeon yesterday morning. I hadn't heard him in a long time and I love this. He said, to pursue union at the expense of truth is treason to the Lord Jesus Christ. We beware of false prophets. We don't befriend them. We we beware them. What good does it do with us to to unite with falsehood if it divides us from Christ? People always want to quote John 15. No, Jesus prayed that we should be one. How about you read all of John 15? Jesus specifically prayed that we would be one in the truth. That we would be one in truth. I pray these words every single week right before the message. That the words of Jesus sanctify us in truth. Your word is truth. He wasn't praying for superficial unity. He wasn't praying for pretended tolerance. He was praying for actual unity and truth. And he exhorts us here, beware of false teachers because he means for us to avoid them and to stay away from them so that the true gospel can be preserved. And I, I do hope you understand. <laughs> to take stances like this, again, in our age of so-called tolerance, it is going to be costly. Some of us are going to get canceled, and we're just going to have to be okay with it. This is another AW. Again, uh, Nate quoted AW Tozer. I've got AW Pink. Maybe we'll all just go grab an A&W root beer when we're done <laughs> this morning. AW Pink, he faithfully proclaimed the gospel at the height of modernism. These words over a half century ago, they're perfectly relevant for us today. This is what he wrote. He said, to turn away from the lifeless preachers and publishers of the day may involve a real cross. Your motives will be misconstrued, your words perverted, and your actions misinterpreted. The sharp arrows of false report will be directed against you. You will be called proud and self-righteous because you refuse to fellowship empty professors. You will be termed censorious and bitter if you condemn in plain speech the subtle delusions of Satan. You will be dubbed narrow-minded and uncharitable because you refuse to join in singing the praises of the quote-unquote great and popular men of the day. More and more, you will be made to painfully realize that the path which leads unto eternal life is narrow, and that few there are who find it. May the Lord be pleased 
to grant unto each of us the hearing ear and obedient heart. Take heed what you hear and read. And church, take heed we will. Our weapon against the false gospel of man is the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Our weapon against the false prophets sent by Satan is the true prophet who is Jesus Christ, who shows us the narrow way. And I want to emphasize, I want to press on this a little bit more as we close together this morning, because I fear that many of us, with the very best of intentions and maybe even in the name of love, would hear all this today and just say, look, this is too much. In our age of so-called tolerance, so much of this just grates against what is being conditioned into our minds and our brains. So please hear this loud and clear this morning. Please hear this loud and clear. It is not legalism to preach on the holiness of God. It is not dogmatism to preach the commands of Jesus Christ. And it is not fundamentalism to call out false prophets. It's simply the way of Jesus. It's what it means to walk the Jesus way. And listen, sometimes when you're walking on the narrow way, people are going to falsely accuse you of being narrow-minded. And that's okay. They did it to the prophets. They did it to the apostles. They did it to Jesus. They'll do it to us. We're going to preach the true gospel because that's the one that takes us through the narrow gate. According to the word of God alone, we're going to preach that you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, and by the help of the Holy Spirit, we will discern the true gospel from the false gospel, and we will faithfully preserve the faith that has been handed down once and for all to the saints. So, fathers, we, we close this time this morning, Lord. We present this desire to you. Lord, we want to be found faithful. We want to be found faithful that in love we want to cling to the whole counsel of your word, and that we do not want to be guilty of misrepresenting your son Jesus Christ to this world, of, of editing your word according to our liking. So Father, break our hearts of the sinful pride that make us want to believe that we know your word better than you do, that we really know what people need today, and help us to submit ourselves to the full counsel of your word and the whole counsel of your word that we would not be afraid to call out repentance, that we would not cowardly cry peace when there is no peace, that we would not preach the wide, easy way that leads to destruction, but we would preach the narrow way that leads to life, and that every single one of us, Lord, would walk on that way, that we would follow your son, Jesus, that we would see him as worthy of our lives, and we would devote ourselves completely to him. So as we transition to communion this morning, I'm just gonna encourage you to keep your heads bowed with me for a moment. Jesus calls us to inspect the fruit of false prophets, but before we come to the table, we should also inspect the fruit of our own lives. Are there ways, even as a professing follower of Jesus, that you're, you're, you're living in the works of the flesh and you're not bearing the fruit of the Spirit? Are there ways that you've been seeking to justify your sin even with the Word of God? doing what Paul warns us against doing, surrounding ourselves with teachers who, who will tickle our itching ears to say what we want them to say. Are you walking the narrow way? Are you walking the narrow way? Are you following Jesus regardless of the cost? What sin in your life you might you need to, to confess this morning, to, to bring forth to the Lord, to ask him to grant you true and genuine repentance, that you would not walk in the works of the flesh, but you would bear the fruit of the Spirit. And listen, maybe you're not a follower of Christ, but you, you want to walk this narrow way. There's only one way to the Father. There's only one way to salvation, and that's through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. He didn't say that he was a way. He didn't say that he was a truth. He didn't say that he was a way to life. He said he's the way, and he's the truth, and he's the life. And today, call on his name in faith and be saved.
turn from your sins. Repent of your sins. Turn from your sins. Believe in the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Call on his name and be saved. He'll fill you with his Holy Spirit. He'll give you a new heart. He'll give you a new mind. He'll give you new desires. So you'll leave your old life of sin behind and you'll pursue the righteous path that he lays before you. So Father, as we close this time this morning, as we pray, as we confess, as we repent, as we sing, as we seek you, we want to know you. So Father, hide your truth in our hearts today that we would be faithful in believing it, we would be faithful in sharing it and proclaiming it until you take us home or we see you face to face. Thank you for Jesus who revealed the truth to us. Thank you for preserving it for us in your word. Use it to shape our lives and make us more like him. We ask all these things in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen, amen.